The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Squawk Box this Wednesday morning. The IMF slashes its medium-term outlook, warning the global economy is heading for its weakest growth since 1990. The fund's chief economist, Pierre-Olivier Goranches, tells CNBC market turmoil has forced a rethink. The discussion has shifted, as you point out. It's less about growth versus inflation. Now it's more about financial stability versus inflation. Can central banks keep tightening policy rates if that's going to create financial instability. The IMF warns of a, quote, perilous combination of vulnerabilities exacerbated by the banking crisis, but the director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department, Tobias Adrian, tells CNBC regulators have still got it right. Contagion that went out from the Credit Suisse episode, you know, was quickly uh, mitigated and the cost was, you know, fairly uh, minimal. So I do think we saw some of the benefits from all this work on resolution uh, that was realized in this episode. Heated debate in the Swiss Parliament over Credit Suisse, with lawmakers symbolically rejecting the rescue in an extraordinary session that pushes late into the night. The situation in the financial markets has calmed down, but it is not definitively stabilised. In our country, Switzerland, has emerged shaken from this painful episode. And HSBC rakes through the remains of Silicon Valley Bank, hiring over 40 former investment bankers from SVB as the lender looks to target tech and healthcare opportunities stateside. So very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program this morning. And we're going to kick off uh, by having a look at these fresh IMF forecasts. And I know, I know, don't say it. When did the IMF ever get its numbers right on some of these economies? But that's not the point, is it? It gives us a template. And like all of the economic forecasts that we talk about here on CNBC, it is a number that we can work from. So let's take you through the list of the changes that the IMF has given us. And you can decide whether you agree or not. Global growth then expected to decline to 2.8% this year before rising to a modest 3% next year. This all in the latest World Economic Outlook report, which is titled a rocky recovery. While inflationary pressures and supply chain disruptions are expected to stabilize, the IMF warning that the global outlook remains fragile in the wake of the recent banking crisis, with the growth expectations the lowest in an IMF report since 1990. Of major economies, the UK here, after putting in that strong performance last year, is now projected to perform the worst, contracting 0.3% this year. But those of you who follow these forecasts will know that is a significant improvement on the 0.6% contraction that the IMF had penciled in for the UK 
previously. So, um, as I pointed out, as I began this segment here, the IMF doesn't always get the numbers right, but at least it gives us a template to work from. Global inflation then expected to normalise this year, according to IMF projections, but that pace of normalisation could be slower than initially thought, according to the body. The group warning that despite falling energy and food prices, core inflation has not yet peaked in a number of major economies. And of course, as we look ahead to the inflation data out of the United States today, that will be a key market event that we need to focus on as we talk about all of the market outlook forecasts over the next few hours. Well, the IMF chief economist Pierre-Olivier Garanch has told CNBC that the global economy has faced crises on all fronts in the past few years and a return to growth will be slow. We have the economy is basically recovering from two powerful blows in the last two, three years. The pandemic, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that has disrupted energy markets and has raised prices of food and energy around the world. And so we're on a, on a mending path. We are still convalescing, if you want. So growth is expected to be, to be somewhat low. We still have an inflation problem. So inflation is still high and it requires monetary policy to tighten and central banks have been doing that. And so that's why we have this sort of broad trajectory. But around that, we also have the financial instability that we've seen the last month. We've seen a little bit of it in last year as well, in the, in the second half of the year. And that is creating some downside risks for our global trajectory. Well, Karanch has also told Jamana that the fund is increasingly concerned about the stability of the global financial sector. The discussion has shifted, as you point out. It's less about growth versus inflation. Now it's more about financial stability versus inflation. Can central banks keep tightening policy rates if that's going to create financial instability? And here our assessment at this point is central banks and financial authorities have the tools to address pockets of instability that might pop up. Things like Silicon Valley Bank in the US or things like you know the LDIs, the liquidity driven investment in the UK back in the fall. And if they address these pockets of instability, then monetary policy should stay focused on bringing inflation down. And so that's our recommendation at this point. How would these financial instability risks manifest themselves in terms of lower growth expectations? So we are concerned about what would we have seen in the banking sector, in particular in the US, but also in maybe in other countries, might do to growth in 2023. What, what, is the, what is going on? Well, we've had, as a result of the increase in interest rates by central banks, the funding cost of banks has gone up. They have to pay more to their depositors to keep them. We've seen depositors leaving banks because they are not uh, getting compensation that is high enough. And they've also booked some losses on the asset side. They've realized losses on their holdings of long-term uh, long bonds. And so banks are in a more precarious situation. They have healthy cushions, but it's certainly going to lead them to be a little bit more prudent and maybe cut down lending some. And when we run our models and we look at what might happen if they start tightening lending beyond what is already there, we find that it would have an effect on, on global growth. It would bring it down from 2.8% in 23 to 2.5%. Now that's a scenario where financial instability is still contained. It's just the banks deciding to be a little bit more prudent and cutting down lending. There is also an, a more adverse scenario 
that one would be associated with much more financial instability that would not be contained and that would lead to massive capital flows from the rest of the world trying to go back to safety, going to U.S. Treasuries, dollar appreciation, increasing risk premium, loss of confidence. You put all of this together, the impact on global growth would be much more severe, would be growing at about 1%. But of course, the probability that this would happen is comparatively low. We find that it's maybe around 15%. Jemana also caught up with Tobias Adrian, the IMF's director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department, and asked him about the impact of higher interest rates on the banking sector. In the banks, we have seen some of the stress. Now, SVB was an extreme outlier. Um, it was, you know, badly managed, had risk on the asset side and the liability side of the balance sheet. And when inflation surprised to the upside, those risks were triggered and uh, you know the bank imploded very quickly. Um, you know other banks have these exposures, but most of them to a lesser degree. The good thing is that capital and liquidity is much higher today than it was in the 2008 crisis, and we have not seen a sharp rise in credit risk at the moment. But we also worry about the non-bank financial sector. Mm -hmm. So the LDI is one example in the pension uh, segment uh, of the UK. We saw Grenzel and Arcegos. Uh, and there could be other uh, stresses in the non-bank financial segment as well. Mm, so elevated stresses right now potentially. The big question that market participants are asking is whether these episodes that we saw in the US, obviously in Switzerland as well, has been a focus in Europe, are idios idiosyncratic events or systemic events. And I look at a couple of charts that you published today. In the case of US banks, it seems to me that there's still potentially a lot of unrealized losses that could hit U.S. banks should they mark to market on some of their interest rate sensitive portfolios. How worried should we be about that given the potential for a systemic episode? So um, I would frame it in terms of uh, inflation going forward. So what is priced in markets is that inflation will come down, you know, fairly quickly and interest rates are going to decline as well yield curves are sharply inverted. And uh, that uh, would uh, be positive news for those banks with unrealized losses because the mark-to-market -market value of those securities would go back up. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so the unrealized losses would disappear. This is how banking normally works. They hold to maturity, so they might lose for some time, but then they might win again mm. and uh, uh, nothing happens. Um, of course, there are a number of banks with exposures uh, to uh, these unrealized losses, but we also have a very strong safety net, in particular in the U.S. Mm. So the systemic risk exemption was used in the U.S. to backstop the deposits, even the uninsured deposits of those banks that were under stress, and that contained uh, the problem. So I would expect that the policy tools of the, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, and the deposit insurance are strong enough to contain those stresses. And to be as Adrian there. Meanwhile, the IIF president, Tim Adams, dismissed concerns of a wider crisis in the banking sector. I refer to the last month as a, a period of market turmoil or turbulence. I don't think of it as a crisis. And the reason is the following. We have over 4,000 banks in the United States. Uh, we have about 10,000 banks globally that are part of SWIFT and 35,000 financial institutions throughout the world. 99.999% of them opened their doors over the past month and had no problems whatsoever. Really just a few isolated idiosyncratic institutions. 
So I think it is not a crisis. I think it was market turbulence. It has subsided. It has stabilized. But we need to be vigilant and we need to watch for other stresses in the system. What are your banking members saying? How are they feeling about the outlook here? Sure. Well, they're cautious. You know, uh, you see the fund here has uh, marked down their forecast for this year. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of downside risk, especially in advanced economies. The emerging markets actually look a little bit better, which is uh, nice yeah. for a change. Mm -hmm. There are risks. Uh, there are geopolitical risks, which, uh, which we can talk about. But the downside risks are real, and we just don't know how deep they are. The Fed's going to probably tighten again. Uh, mm -hmm. We have other central banks in Europe and the UK mm -hmm. tightening. Uh, so there are risks to the downside. Meanwhile, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen pushed back on the IMF's expectations, telling reporters she would not, quote, overdo the negativism about the global economy. Now, Yellen added that the U.S. economy in particular is showing signs of strength. I've not really seen evidence at this stage suggesting a contraction in credit, although that is a possibility. Um, I believe our banking system remains strong and resilient. It has um, solid capital and liquidity. And the U.S. economy is obviously performing exceptionally well with continued solid uh, job creation, inflation gradually moving down, um, robust consumer spending. So I'm not anticipating a downturn in the economy, although, um, of course, that remains a risk. So fascinating, um, Janet. Well, you know, the whole thing is a bit fascinating, isn't it, really? Uh, because, um, as I was saying at the top here, um, I think most market practitioners feel that the IMF's forecasts are never accurate. In fact, even the IMF has always worried that its own world economic outlook is not accurate, which is why over the years they've asked academics to go back and analyse the accuracy. And it all sort of leads back to the, the issue, why did we start the programme this morning talking about these forecasts and what value are they for our audience who are active in the markets. And the conclusion of the analysis um, back in 2016, there was a great piece done by Michael Artis. If you're interested, go and have a look at the IMF's own website on this. And quite frankly, he concluded that on the short-term basis, the forecasts do have some problems because they're particularly poor around emerging and developing economies, slightly better on industrial economies. But to quote from the report, although forecast accuracy has not improved over time and predicting the turning points of the business cycle remains a weakness for industrial countries, the forecasts for output growth and inflation are satisfactory. Well, we all know what satisfactory means. Many of us used to get that on our report card, and generally that didn't play too well with the parents, I have to say. Yeah, but, <laughs> but be aware, the, the, the real value, I think, of this is, look, um, you understand that this is the aggregation of institutional uh, viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So effectively, all the IMF is doing is 
representing the consensus at the moment, which is why quite often on its reporting cycle it appears to be a little bit behind the curve when it comes to current issues. So why does that matter for anybody that's trying to trade the markets today on the inflation data or what other driver uh, they have? The point is the markets are an expression of that collective wisdom in a sense. So that price movement is a reflection of the overall consensus. The trouble is every now and again that consensus changes and I will just put up my first piece of evidence and maybe my only piece because I need to let Karen get back in here and it's the Japanese market today and I don't know if we can have a look at the Nikkei or maybe some of these Japanese trading companies like Nippon uh, Yusin or Marabeni who are up sort of two to three percent at the moment. The reason Japan is doing so well this morning is somebody who you might have heard of called Warren Buffett has decided to go public on the fact that he's been buying trading companies in Japan which have been a bit of a ho-hum not particularly that exciting part of the markets and all of a sudden because Warren Buffett is interested everybody's looking at a whale investor and thinking oh maybe they deserve re-rating which is why we've suddenly got a three to uh, you know a two to three percent spike across the board in the trading companies. So the consensus is important. The IMF opinion on the world economy is important, but at the end of the day, it may not make you money until you see somebody step out of the consensus and take what some might think is a contrarian opinion at a time on a particular asset class. We've gone from an environment that was a fairly easy one to trade where markets went up, it floated on boats and it wasn't very difficult to make money the last number of years. I think what you're seeing now is much more complex environment, very difficult factors to navigate, hence uh, fairly specific trades like this one we're talking about in Japan for Warren Buffett and why that is key for investors at this point. But just to, to segue back to, to Janet Yellen mm. uh, and what the intel is there about not being too negative on the outlook, one of the fears I think in some quarters of the banks is that we are again back to talking ourselves into a recession that was suitably downbeat. You remember, you know, we went up the hill to Davos, up the mountain, and there was a view that we'd all turned up fairly pessimistic. But then by the uh, halfway through the meeting, there was a view that, well, maybe things are not that bad after all. And then sentiment started to change into this year. If you look at some of the numbers, the growth outlook numbers, and to Janet Yellen's point, what we've got the US economy there is still growing and you know, the numbers that the data that we've seen the wash up from the banking turmoil has a lot of market participants concerned that we are looking at a recession again back to the question of how deep how shallow that recession will be you're not seeing it in those IMF numbers uh, effectively we're still growing into 2024 the other point here for those economies that are actually in contraction it does look shallow. Germany 0.1% this year, even UK 0.3%. The contraction has not been as deep as many had expected around the UK. But then the bounce back, I mean, that is fairly decent when you look at the one plus percent numbers across in Germany, France and the UK, this side of the world that has been an underperformer for a number of years. So in terms of not being too negative, I think that is key. But one of the, the caveats here is around the financial turmoil. And that is still an unknown. The IMF, I guess, hinting that perhaps there could be more to come, that is SVB, the canary in the coal mine. For me, that's the concern. And if you look at the decline we've already seen in terms of the lending capacity, again, we're waiting out for the Fed to, to weigh in on this. But so far, the IMF was talking about bank lending capacity declining by 1% this year because of what we've seen around the health of those mid-sized regional banks, effectively stripping almost half of 
percentage point off US GDP this year. So there is an impact, and the question is just how long does that impact roll on? Is it worse than we anticipate? Yeah, the NIFB, let's get the, the acronym out, the NIFB Small Business Survey was fairly clear on this, that the SMEs in the United States are feeling more pessimistic about the availability of credit. And inevitably, when you get tightening of conditions, then you, you, you see that impact first the small and medium-sized enterprises that just have a much harder time getting an improvement in those credit lines. I think what's interesting about you know where this leaves us on the Fed, you've got people like Goldsby now who are out there going, this tightening represents something like 50 to 75 basis points. Maybe it's time for a pause here from the Fed. Williams, the other side of the coin, we don't see that this is necessarily having an effect on the direction for inflation. But I think if we if we take the aggregate of what the Fed speakers are saying now, it almost looks like 25 basis points is in the works for the May meeting, which actually would just take us back to where we are on the dot plot at 525, at that range uh, around 525. So, um, at the moment, it, it does seem to me that the, 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 the market and the Fed are becoming a little more aligned on the, the expectations around rates here. But, you know, th there still seems to be some bullishness out there. And perhaps the fact that some of the yields are coming down in the bond market indicates that there are people who are looking at that yield differential and saying, well, maybe it's time not to chase the bonds, but to buy a bit more equity. I think the message too very clear from the IMF that if there is an inflation challenge, then the Fed, other central banks should not take their eye off the ball. And of course, that sets us up for the CPI numbers today, yeah. the all important inflation numbers that the market's been waiting for. If we don't get a cooling off, then again, that poses a further challenge that the Fed makes a decision between financial stability potentially yeah. and inflation come back to this because there's a lot more to say ahead of those numbers uh, later on and also more to say about the IMF. Uh, for more on the growth outlook, go to cnbc.com. Now one inflation fighting experiment that deserves continued study, Japan. More good news on inflation in Japan as wholesale price growth slows for the third straight month. But does that fit in with what the Bank of Japan wants to see in terms of accelerating wages and growth? We'll talk about it. And for more from our interview with the IMF Chief Economist, Pierre-Olivia Gorenches, you can check out the Sportbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Japan's Nikkei is the outperformer in Asian trade today, boosted by comments from Warren Buffett. The billionaire told the Nikkei newspaper that he's proud of his investments in Japan's top trading houses 
Having increased his stakes to 7.4% and is considering adding to his portfolio in the country. And on a programming note, the Oracle of Omaha will be joining our U.S. colleagues in just a few hours' time live from Japan. So make a point of uh, catching up with that conversation. Meanwhile, Japanese wholesale price growth slowed for the third straight month in March, up 7.2% in the previous 12 months. That's a fraction more than expected, but well below the February reading of 8.3%. Let's catch up with uh, Sajiro Takeshita, head of Graduate School of Management, Informatics and Innovation at the University of uh, Shizuka. Uh, Sajiro, always good to catch up with you. Thanks for giving us your time this morning. Maybe before we get into the, um, the, the econ chat, can I just ask you about Warren Buffett and the fact that you know, he's, he's exposed his trade into the trading houses. And all of a sudden, um, the markets caught fire. Well, caught fire may be an exaggeration here, but definitely there's been a reassessment in the valuation of some of these trading businesses. Um, what do you think this means in terms of the overall perspective now international investors may take towards Japan and the Nikkei? Well, um, I would say it's very positive. I mean, uh, the article was the top news of the Nikkei newspaper, so obviously many of the people have jumped to it. Everybody should know that he had already invested in these five trading houses, mainly because these trading houses focus very strongly on areas of energy and uh, also some of the uh, issues like food stuff, some of the very, very basic issues. Uh, you know, going forward, and they do have a very long-term vision. So we knew that he was already investing in it, but to reassess and increase his holding, and uh, making some very, very you know strong PR for these companies, uh, I think uh, many of the uh, investors gave a very, very positive push for these you know five major trading houses, uh, which in my opinion is basically you know almost an energy company in many sense, energy investment, I should say. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it would give a fairly well positive push about the sentiment of the Japanese market as a whole. Yeah, it's interesting. Over the last few days, obviously, as we've uh, seen um, the great central bank uh, Haruhiko Kuroda leave the stage and Mr. Ueda uh, step in to replace him, the market has been in a froth of speculation as to whether yield curve control will come to an end and um, what exactly comes next from the BOJ here. But we've, we've had something of a, a modest rebound in sentiment on the idea that there is no policy change at this stage. What's your reading of what uh, uh, Ueda-san intends to do? Well, you know, my personal opinion is that Bank of Japan do not have the deep pocket that many people believe. In fact, if you want to really know what the Bank of Japan will be doing, look at the Fed. I mean, that's really my opinion because the maneuverability and the capability of Bank of Japan and its action is very limited considering its, you know, current account reaching almost 600 trillion yen. Um, so, you know, there's not much that they can do. Uh, of course, they're becoming very good at announcement effects and, uh, you know, the coordination of the central banks are getting much better. So, of course, you know, there's a joint coordination that could basically, you know, save the negative situations from happening. But, you know, I think it's, it's a lot more the environment is getting better because of the external factors. You know, the import prices are going down, weakening the yen has simmered down. That's the reason why, you know, they can sit back on sofa for a while. But, you know, again, um, if we have reiteration about worries about the limitation of Bank of Japan's uh, capability, then I think we have something to worry about.
The IMF has us again hunting around for sources of instability in the financial system and at the same time it has flagged up that uh, the BOJ should release its shackles on the yield curve control policy, otherwise uh, potentially creating some abrupt policy changes later on. As we look for sources of instability in the system, is there a risk around this exit from YCC that the market uh, might see some turmoil in the bond market, not just in Japan but beyond? Well, you know, obviously, I think um, it's just a matter of when uh, rather than what. I mean, it's a matter of timing that, you know, they have to seek to normalize their operations. Uh, as you have been pointing out, you know, the operations that they've been doing is quite, well, peculiar in many sense. But, you know, that also shows and goes back to my point that there is a limitation on what they can do and what they're able to do. Uh, you know such actions as you know the yield curve control that they've been um, trying to convey is in my opinion a part of a desperation you know of the effort that you know uh, and the limitation of the effort that they can make so you know again I think you know uh, Bank of Japan is looking with big fright about you know the external factors which you know for the time being is being simmered down but again, you know, it goes back to the fact that, you know, if we see a resurgence about, you know, the doubts about the capability of Bank of Japan, um, then I think we're going to see the nightmare coming back again uh, pretty soon. If we can just draw a link to the story we started the conversation with around the trading houses that uh, Buffett is investing in. If we see a removal, a step back from uh, yield curve control policy, the, the uh, outcome could it be a firmer Japanese yen from here because that policy has suppressed the trade in the currency. If we do get a firmer yen, surely that is supported for these trading houses that basically import everything what from, from oil, energy to, to food and textiles. Well, of course, then that would hurt the Japanese manufacturing side. So there's always that, you know, balance on both sides. Many people feel that 110 to 120 is an adequate level. But of course, you know, the market doesn't react that way. Uh, but as you just pointed out, yes, you know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, strong and beneficiary. And perhaps when we're still seeing the signs of, you know, inflation, of course, it's, it's, it is definitely, definitely simmering down, but if we're at least seeing still the flare and the fire of inflation, then yes, I can easily understand that Japanese authorities would prefer strengthening yen, considering uh, the fact that, as you just noted, you know, uh, we're the most vulnerable country in, in amongst the OECD nation as far as in external prices are concerned. Catch up with you again to hear your thoughts on Japan. Sajira Takeshita with us, a Dean of Graduate School of Management, Informatics and Innovation at the University of Shizuoka. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.